Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. In the middle 1970s, Britain was a mess. Like the rest of the West, the country was blindsided by the Arab oil embargo. It was a recession that just would not end. And to make matters worse, everybody seemed to be going on strike from coal miners to grave diggers. Unemployment was high, especially amongst young people. The once mighty British Empire was in big trouble. There was a sense that it was all over, done. There was no future. Complicating this was the class system. Those at the top, including the monarchy, just kept on doing whatever they wanted to do while everyone else, well, let them eat cake, essentially. Now, I know I'm getting my countries and monarchies mixed up, but you get the point here. Something had to blow, especially with young people. And when it did blow, it blew up real good. The second point I'd like to make is that there is a genuine social point to punk rock. You're joking. This is the complete history of alt-rock, chapter four. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. It really feels quite violently about the way that the old rock scene was put together. Yeah, it's awful. As a kid, he was shy, but he's grown up, you know. uh, I wouldn't say he's quite as shy now as what he was, you know. I'm going to steal every penny I can out of this country. And then quit. <laughs> well, the, the media backlash then. No, it means like some people like it. It means that yeah. a lot of people have bought it. What was good was they bought the record before the journalists had a chance to review it. Now, this I like, because uh, I'd like to see the music press blown up in the morning. He's always been interested in music records and, you know, Gosh. even when he was young, yes, when he was little and that. What does that sound like? I'm afraid if people treat us like an antique, then they can go to hell, because that ain't what it's about. That's a very early demo recording from the Sex Pistols called Submission. We'll get back to them in a bit. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 4 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock. And before we dive into what was happening in Britain in 1975 and 1976, we need to finish up our story in New York. Now, this is a bit messy because we'll be jumping back and forth across the Atlantic a bunch of times. By the fall of 1975, some of the larger record labels had finally started to notice what was happening at the underground level in New York. The outrageous New York Dolls had a record deal with a major label, although they were well on their way to losing it. Lou Reed's solo career was going well, thanks largely to the patronage of David Bowie, who by 1975 was a genuine international superstar. Now, it was true that Iggy Pop had checked himself into a mental hospital, which was one of the wisest things he'd ever done, but he had already made his point. By the way, his only visitor was David Bowie. He brought him drugs. 
but that's another story entirely. And we have to get back to this skinny poet from New Jersey who looked like a female version of Keith Richards. She was recording a debut album. When Patti Smith's record came out at the end of November 1975, it was another one of those epiphany moments for weirdos, outsiders, and those who were actively searching for alternative forms of rock and pop. For example, I once asked Michael Stipe of R.E.M. about this. What was it like the first time you heard Patti Smith? Uh, I couldn't. I stayed up all night with the headphones on. I was 15, I think. Uh, actually, I need someone to like go on the Internet and find out the exact date that Horses was released because whatever day it was released in the U.S. was the day that I bought it. Okay. But I took it home. I put on the headphones. I sat down on the couch with a bowl of cherries huge bowl of cherries and I listened to it and I couldn't take it off all night I just sat there and listened to it ate the whole bowl of cherries got sick to my stomach went to school with no sleep and I was a changed person it was such uh, a revelation to me that that record was truly one of the defining moments in my life At exactly the same time Patti Smith was attracting people from all over the city to her club gigs and some of the scuzziest venues in town, a snotty amateur band who could barely tune their guitars were struggling through their first gigs. They were called the Sex Pistols. The singer's name was Johnny Rotten because he had green teeth. And their first show was on November the 6th, 1975. It was at an art school, which you'd think would be receptive to new and different things, but uh, no. The student organizer was so repulsed by what he heard that he cut electricity to the stage after just 10 minutes. But within a year, all the UK would be talking about this band. An early version of God Save the Queen, back when the group still referred to it by its old title, No Future. Like I said, the Six Pistols time would come, but we have to now zip back to New York for a little backstory. Their manager was a clothing shop owner named Malcolm McLaren, and he had traveled to New York on a fashion fact-finding mission, and through a series of weird connections and coincidences, ended up managing the New York Dolls in their very last days. He was also impressed by the fashion sense of the New York underground. McLaren was particularly taken with Richard Hell of the band Television. This guy was so poor that his clothes were literally falling apart, and the only way he could wear anything was to hold his clothes together with safety pins. Now, Malcolm thought this was a brilliant fashion statement, and he took the safety pin look, some look, back to England where he immediately began offering similar clothes for sale at his shop in the King's Road in the Chelsea area of London. The store was called Sex. By August 1975, and now bitten by the music bug, McLaren decided that he needed a living, breathing advertisement for the stuff he sold in his store, the store called Sex. It was part capitalism and part situationist art statement. Well, at least that's how Malcolm saw it. The group he assembled was essentially four young criminals who spent far too much time hanging out at the store, including this kid with the green teeth who wore a t-shirt that read, I hate Pink Floyd. He called the band Sex Pistols, 
sex after the store and pistols because, uh, well, that sounded dangerous and weirdly S&M-ish. Hold that thought. We'll be back to the Sex Pistols shortly. Meanwhile, back in New York, the Ramones were celebrating the first anniversary of their debut gig at CBGB. They had recorded their first demos in late 1974, cost them about $2,000, and more people began to come to their shows, including, believe it or not, a reviewer from the New York Times. Here's what he wrote about the Ramones. I love this. The Ramones are a highly stylized extension of the punk medium. They deliver a nonstop set of brisk, monochromatically intense songs where conventional considerations of pace and variety are thrown calculatedly into the wind. I think he liked them. Cassettes and press clippings were sent to every single record company that the Ramones could find in their phone book. And no one cared. Except a label called Sire. Here's Joey Ramone. I remember originally we got turned down by like every label there was. And then Sire was interested in us. And, um, you know, we eventually went with Sire, though there were, you know, the, uh, later on, you know, as time went on, there were, um, I remember Electra, Asylum was in, you know, there were, there were bigger labels interested, but we decided to go with Sire because we felt the Seymour uh, Stein understood us best and that uh, we wouldn't get lost in the shuffle being on a major company. And all the, all the labels watched our success, you know, because we were sort of the trailblazers. We, you know, we went out and did the first, you know, our national tour. I mean... There was nobody like us, and um, and uh, then when they, you know, saw how well we had done, like the world got signed, you know what I mean? Sire had the Ramones booked into a recording studio at Radio City Music Hall on February 2nd, 1976. By February 19th, they were done. Total cost, $6,400. Legend has it that the master tape was so loud that it irreparably damaged the pressing equipment at the record plant. The cutter head was blown clean off the machine. When the album was released on April 23rd, 1976, almost everyone treated this record as some kind of joke. 14 two-minute songs, an album that was done in 28 minutes, no guitar solos. What was the deal with all the leather jackets? Most of the world ignored the Ramones, but there were those who understood what was going on. Here was a bunch of young kids caught up in the unpretentious joy of making rock and roll. All right, so the musicianship wasn't the greatest, but that was besides the point. What counted was the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion, and the realness of it all. The Ramones with Blitzkrieg Bop from 1976, a song inspired in part by the chanting of a big hit of the day. It was by the Bay City Rollers. The song was called Saturday Night. This was a huge bubblegum AM radio hit that summer. Take a listen. See what I mean? By the late spring of 1976, the punk movement was growing on both sides of the Atlantic. And over the next several months, there were a series of important cultural exchanges. Patti Smith 
made her UK debut in May. But it was really up to the Ramones to really show the British punks how it was done. And it happened on July 4th, 1976, the date of the big American bicentennial. That's when the Ramones played their first British show at the Roundhouse in London, five days before Blitzkrieg Bop was released as the group's first British single. The London punk community was small but dedicated, and they were fascinated by what they heard coming out of New York. It seemed like everyone was at the gig, including members of the Sex Pistols. And from that night on, the UK music scene was really never the same. The Ramones became a major catalyst in the development of British punk rock. It was really wild going over to England, where, I mean, we were like, you know, we were selling out CBGBs and all. And, I mean, kind of, there was a wild scene going on there, but when we got over to England, it was, we were playing for 3,000 kids, and everybody was already tuned into um, what it was that we were all about. And uh, I remember at the time, the, the big thing going on in England was pub rock. Dr. Feelgood was the big band at the time, and Brimsley Schwartz, and, uh, you know, doing... I remember we got we were like treated like royalty when we got there, and uh, then we did this club Dingwalls, and um, basically the whole makeup of Dingwalls were all these kids that would later form their these kind of groundbreaking bands of their own, and like at our sound check, uh, we met like Johnny Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer and all these people, and they were really. Um, you know, they were totally taken with the band, and um, and really, uh, after that, when we left England at that point, uh, you know, they, I mean, they, t- they told us that, you know, we had turned them on, kind of opened them up, and uh, inspired them to form their own bands, basically. When we came back in 77, the whole thing was uh, full-blown, and I feel like from that point on, you know, we really kind of... Um, Brought upon a radical change that would really sweep the world. But British punk wasn't just a copy of what was happening in New York. The Americans were artsy, quoting French poets. UK punkers were fueled by the inequities of the British class system, a failing economy, a crumbling empire, and a new generation of unemployed young people who really didn't hold up much hope for the future. Punk rock provided an outlet for this frustration, for this anger, and for this energy liberated and empowered by the fact that it was no longer necessary to be an accomplished musician in order to make music, new bands were formed almost hourly. Most never amounted to much, while others stuck with it long enough to make a contribution to music history. Still, by September of 1976, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these punk rock bands all over Britain. They got gigs wherever they could, and several bands, including the Sex Pistols, found themselves attracting a regular following. This was all getting very exciting. Perhaps it was time to organize something larger, a festival of sorts, just so everyone could assess the situation. And so it came to pass that an event was held at a tiny basement venue at 100 Oxford Street called, appropriately, the 100 Club. This was normally a jazz hangout, but the club began flirting with punk that March when the Sex Pistols started getting regular gigs there. Other punk bands soon followed, and by September, it was decided that the 100 Club would be the perfect place for the first-ever British Punk Rock Festival. It was over two nights, September 20th and 21st, 1976, and those were two of the most important nights the British music scene had ever seen. Hundreds of people crammed into the basement, while hundreds more were left out on the sidewalk. The lineup featured a new group called The Clash, 
a group making their debut called Susie and the Banshees. The Buzzcocks were there and a few others. The headliners for both nights were the Sex Pistols. And here's what they sounded like on that second night. This is an actual recording made at the 100 Club during the Punk Rock Festival, September 21st, 1976. The 100 Club Punk Rock Festival was famous for another reason. On the first night, the drummer for this new band, Susie and the Banshees, savagely beat up one of England's best-known music journalists. Legend has it that a bicycle chain was involved. The second night, this same guy was arrested for throwing a beer glass. They hit a girl in the face and blinded her in one eye. Who was this oik? Well, he went by the name Sid Vicious. He will come up later. Let's back up just a bit. The very same night that the Ramones were showing the British punks how it was done, July 4th, 1976, a new group was making its public debut up in Sheffield. They had only been together for about three and a half weeks, and their impact on not only punk, but rock in general, would eventually be massive. Their story is next. Even though there were hundreds, maybe thousands, of punk rock bands sprouting up in Britain through 1976 and 1977, hindsight allows us to identify a holy trinity of groups. The first would be the Sex Pistols, and the second would be The Clash. The Clash evolved out of the most famous British punk band to never play a gig. They were called the London SS. Bunch of people flowed through this band, including an American woman named Chrissy Hind, who would later form the Pretenders. Nothing really happened with the London SS. They just had promise and potential. The singer of The Clash was a busker. He had a secretly posh background, the son of a diplomat. He called himself Joe Strummer, and he was the last to join when he was convinced to defect from a pub rock band called the 101ers. The closest we can come down to nailing a date for The Clash's formation is June 6, 1976. Between rehearsals, the group agonized over a name. They thought about The Mirrors. That didn't work. The Outsiders. No. The Psychotic Negatives. The Phones. The Heart Drops. The Weak Heart Drops. But then the bass player was reading the newspaper one night, and he ran across a headline describing a clash with police. Clash. That had a nice ring to it. Many gigs followed, including a set at the 100 Club Punk Rock Festival. The first Clash single was inspired by some disturbances by hordes of young people at that summer's Notting Hill Carnival. They called it White Riot. And for some reason, the song was recorded at about half its regular speed. In other words, when the Clash played this song live... They played it twice as fast. The Clash with White Riot, their very first single, released on March 18, 1977. This, however, was far from the first made in Britain punk rock record. Back in the summer of 76, the assumption was that the Sex Pistols would be the first. They were attracting the most attention, they were getting the most ink and playing the biggest gigs. And then on October 8th, they signed a deal with EMI Records for £40,000, which was a fortune in those days. And yes, EMI was part of the recording industry establishment. Heck, they were the Beatles record label. But as anti-establishment as we see punk today, no one in 1976 considered this to be selling out. In fact, this was exactly the opposite. The Pistols were admired 
for managing to swindle such a huge amount of money from a gullible multinational major record label, and the home of the Beatles, no less. This was considered to be a major subversive victory for the punk rock cause. So that was it then. The Pistols would be the first British punk rock band to release a record. But then, the third group in our trinity snuck past at the pole. Less than two weeks after the Pistols signed their EMI deal, a group called The Damned released a 45 on a new label called Stiff. And the budget for their project was 50 pounds. The date? October 22nd, 1976. The Damned and New Rose, the seven-inch single that has gone down in history as being the first made-in-Britain punk rock record. But that 45 was important in another way, and in a way more important than just being first. The Damned showed punk rockers everywhere that there was a second way to go. Now, you could fight for big money on a major record label deal like the Pistols did and like the Clash were doing, or you could just go ahead and say, right then, let's make a record ourselves. Do it cheap, do it dirty, and then release it through one of the many independent record labels that were springing up almost daily through Britain. This DIY, this do-it-yourself approach, preached by the dam, convinced many groups to take a much more proactive approach when it came to recording and releasing music. And as 1976 became 1977, punk was all about independent recordings. Again, we'll come back to this in a bit. 28 days after the dam's new rose hit the stores, the Pistols released their first record. The date? Friday, November 18th, 1976. still smokes, don't it? The first release of Anarchy in the UK consisted of just a thousand copies in a plain black sleeve. They sold out instantly. The reviews were excellent. But we need to put this into perspective. Despite what we may think today from our vantage point in the future, at the time the Pistols and the Damned released their first singles, punk rock was still nothing to 99% of Britain. It was just this small, weird, incestuous scene. And few people outside of this little community had ever even heard of the Sex Pistols. That is, until December 1st, 1976. Wait till you hear this. On Wednesday, December 1st, 1976, the Sex Pistols were just kind of sitting around when they were suddenly booked in as last-minute substitute guests on an extremely bland tea-time chat show called Today. You think Oprah's bad? You have no idea how bad this Today show was. The original guests were supposed to be another new group called Queen, but their singer, a guy named Freddie Mercury, needed a trip to the dentist, so they were forced to cancel. The marketing people at Queen's label were really upset and really apologetic. They called the studio. Now, we're really, really sorry, but please let us make it up to you. We have this other group called the Sex Pistols. They've just released a record. Why don't we put them in a limo and send them over? The producers at Today were desperate. I mean, this was live TV, so they said, all right, just make sure they behave. Someone ran to the Pistols' practice space where they were rehearsing and lured them into a limo with some of their friends uh, with a lot of champagne and beer and then rushed them all to the TV studio. They were heavily toasted by the time they arrived, and when they got on the set, the interview lasted all of two minutes. But this two minutes has gone down in history 
is one of the most legendary rock and roll television appearances ever. I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company. Doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? Uh, or more to marry Really? Oh, yeah. Well, tell me more about it. Spain, haven't we? I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. it's all gone. Really? Down yep. Really? Good lord. Now, oh, I want to know one thing. <laughs> what? Are you serious or are you just making me no, trying to make gone. me laugh? Go Really? Yeah. No, but I mean about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. You, you are serious? Mm. Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, and Browns have all died. Spares, really? Oh, what what, what, what are we saying, wonderful sir? Wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes, they really turn us on. What do they do? Well, suppose they turn other people on. That's just their tough It's what? Nothing, a rude word. Next question. No, no, what was the rude word? Was it really? Good heavens, you right me Oh, all right. So what about you girls behind? Right. Are you uh, <laughs> your granddad. Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. That's ah, so what I thought you were doing. Always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> you dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty f What a clever boy. What a f***ing rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. The other rocker, Abel, and I'm saying nothing else about him, will be back tomorrow. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'm not seeing you again. From me, though, good night. Well, you might imagine how that went over with staid conservative Britain right at tea time. Within hours, the entire country was freaking out. And the next morning, every paper in the British Isles carried headlines condemning this punk rock scum. The filth and the fury. That was one big headline. It was this gigantic national scandal. All because of those two minutes. And on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon in December... The Sex Pistols had done more in that time to publicize punk rock than anyone had done in the last two years. My personal view on punk rock is that it's nauseating, disgusting, degrading, ghastly, sleazy, prurient, voyeuristic, and generally nauseating. I think that just about covers it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think most of these groups would be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk rock groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I would like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it. You know, I think uh, the whole world would be vastly improved by their total and utter non-existence. Here's manager Malcolm McLaren. If you're sick on stage, you spit at the audience and so on. I mean, how can this be a good example to children? Well, people are sick everywhere. People are sick and fed up of this country, telling them what to do. But not getting paid for it. Pardon? But not getting paid for putting on that sort of public show. Well, nor are we. We ain't even being allowed to play. In fact, you're acting as spokesman for the group today. Yes, indeed. Have you stopped them from talking to us? Not at all. They're just so disgusted by having to answer so many questions about something so simple. Now that the press were on the scent, everything the Pistols did was news. They were linked to violence at their gigs. There were stories of them spitting on the audience and the audience spitting back. Some said that the Pistols' favorite trick was to vomit in public. Shows were picketed. Promoters were spooked. The group was banned from just about everywhere. Naturally, this just made them even more famous. As a result, 
More new punk rock groups formed almost hourly. Generation X, The Vibrators, Sham 69, The Stranglers began to record. The Damned went into the studio again. The Clash started preparations for their first album. And this is where we run into a Manchester group called The Buzzcocks. And I know we've mentioned them before, but we have to concentrate a little bit on them right now. They were formed sometime in 1975. If you've ever seen the movie 24-Hour Party People, there's that scene early on that tells the story of the Sex Pistols' first gig in Manchester at a place called the Lesser Free Trade Hall. If you haven't seen the movie, rent it now. You will see why this concert was so important to British punk rock culture. Anyway, that show was promoted by Howard DeVoto and Pete Shelley, the two principals in the Buzzcocks. That's true. Shortly after that gig, Howard borrowed money from his dad so the band could make the first ever fully independent British punk rock record. It's a four-track EP called Spiral Scratch, and it came out on January 29th, 1977. And like The Damned had shown back in October, it proved to everyone that you could do it yourself. Buzzcocks, the first British band to release a fully independent record. They financed it, they distributed it themselves, and they did it on a label that they formed themselves. So take it from me when I say that in 1977, this was radical. In retrospect, the first couple of months of 1977 were very, very important. Let me just give you an idea of what happened then. January 3rd, three guys named Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Ronald Wayne formed a company called Apple Computers. The two Steves would stick it out, but Rodden didn't think much of their plan for creating personal computers. I mean, who would buy one of those? So two weeks later, he sold his 10% stake in the company for 800 bucks. Probably not the smartest business move ever made. Meanwhile, ABC started running something called a miniseries on January the 23rd. It was called Roots, and that turned into a cultural phenomenon. And as far as British punk went, The Clash finally signed a record deal with CBS on the 25th. Then the Buzzcocks released their Spiral Scratch album on January 29th. And in between, the Sex Pistols were kicked off EMI. Since the infamous swearing incident on national TV, the Pistols had become toxic. They were in the papers almost every day. And the thing that did it was one of these alleged public vomiting episodes at Heathrow Airport, no less. Nothing actually happened. And yeah, the band was at the airport, but... That didn't stop the tabloids from being a little uh, fictitious. But the bottom line here is that EMI, home of the Beatles, and the owners of Abbey Road Recording Studios just couldn't take it anymore. So they paid the Pistols 40,000 pounds to just go away. Two months later, A&M Records decided to take a chance and signed the Pistols to another deal. But during the party that immediately followed at the label's offices, there was a lot of damage Guitarist Steve Jones was apparently caught having sex with a staffer in the bathroom. A&M started to have second thoughts. When executives at head office in Los Angeles questioned the decision, and when other A&M artists like the Carpenters complained, the pistols were dropped. They were on A&M for just six days. However, that pain was eased by a buyout worth 75,000 pounds. In May of 1977, the pistols signed with their third label, Virgin Records. And on May 27th, 1977, just in time for Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee, this empire-wide celebration of 25 years of her being on the throne, the Pistols released their second single, Little Boy. 
On Chapter 5 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock, we'll work our way through 1977, this huge year in the world of punk on both sides of the Atlantic. And it's also the year when we began to hear of something called New Wave. Chain reaction has started. This is where it gets really interesting. Chapter 5 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. (laughs) 